since November 28, 1987, Kevin Williams has had a heavy interest in radio. Since the spring of 1994, he has been observing radio closely. Now, listen to Kevin Williams on the LDS podcast. Here's Kevin Williams. It is 3.44 in the afternoon on uh, Thursday, January 4th, 2018. Gosh, it's hard to believe it's 2018. And uh, yeah, uh, a couple months I'll be used to saying 2018 and it'll actually sink into my mind that it's 2018. Isn't it funny how that works? There's uh, the, the new year, and it takes about a month or so to sink into your mind. Oh, yeah, it's it's the new year, whatever it is, whether it's uh, 2017, 18, 1990, or whatever. Anyway, it is uh, Thursday, January 4th, 2017. This is the LDS Life Podcast. I'm Kevin Williams, broadcasting to you from my Kevin Cave. Now, I want to talk about my last podcast for just a few minutes, and then we'll move right on to this podcast. Uh, some of you have noticed, well, in fact, all of you probably noticed that there was something a little bit different with last, uh, last, uh, well, the last podcast I did of 2017. There is a female who does my voiceover work. Her name is Karen Miller. She is not a member of the church, but I figured she has a good enough voice, and it doesn't matter to me whether she's a member or not. The bottom line is I get some voiceover work done to make this podcast sound just a little bit more professional. And I actually have some plans in the next few months to make this podcast sound a little bit more professional. It'll take me possibly a good three or four months, maybe even six months, who knows. But uh, before the end of this year, I can guarantee you that it will sound a lot lot more professional. I want to make the website to look more professional too because one of the problems I'm noticing with the website, when I go click on it, to make sure that my podcasts have published and whatnot, I seem to have a hard time hitting the links. So I need to get that fixed. And I'll probably get that fixed, hopefully, by the end of this week. I hope. I hope. I hope. All right. uh, So without further ado, this is the first podcast of the year. I hope you had a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. My Christmas was okay. I went to Montana. It was brutally cold. It did not get above one degrees at all the high that whole time i was there matter of fact the high was about anywhere from one degrees to negative one it was brutally cold and speaking of my vacation to montana i want to talk to you about my vacation to montana yes we're going to get into the death of president monson believe me but i want to talk about a couple other things first one of them my vacation in montana i'm not going to go over the whole entire vacation but i want to go over some of what happened because I think it's a very very important discussion to have I was in my brother's suburban and one of my nephews was uh, I don't know what he was doing he was uh, pointing something he was making a I guess a finger gesture with his pinky and my sister-in-law said, don't do that. It looks like you're flipping someone off. And she said, well, I'm not. And they kept arguing back and forth. Finally, my sister-in-law said, well, it looks evil. We avoid the very appearance of evil. How many of us have heard this before? We thought about doing something as teenagers. Our parents would always say, or at least my mom anyway, would tell me, avoid the very appearance of evil. Well, that kind of put a damper in the argument because I had nothing to come back with at that time. 
I was just a teenager, inexperienced. And then my sister-in-law said, that's why we don't smoke candy cigarettes. That's why, I don't know, she lists a whole bunch of things. But then she said, that's why we don't go to Starbucks. I chimed right in and said, I go to Starbucks sometimes. We got into a discussion about avoiding the very appearance of evil. Apparently, my brother's bishop in Montana used to go to Starbucks to get steamers. And, oh yeah, one thing my sister-in-law said, well, people are going to think, people might think that you're drinking coffee at Starbucks. And I said, well, that's their problem. And, of course, my brother's a lot more black and white than I am about things like this. Much more black and white. I'm more of the uh, intellectual type. He's very much black and white. I consider myself an intellectual Mormon. But nonetheless, he said, well, after I said that, he said, well, it's not your problem because the prophet said avoid the very appearance of evil. Which, uh, since I don't exactly look at things from a black and white standpoint, often some of the time, we got into a discussion. I said, well, so-and-so goes to Dutch Brothers, which is a coffee shop in Idaho, people that we know, family members, and they get the hot chocolate and whatever. And my brother wasn't having any of it. And so I want to bring this discussion here because it's been a long time since I have heard the phrase avoid the very appearance of evil, and I do think people take it very overboard. In fact, in my mind, I hate to say this as a practicing Mormon, it doesn't hold as much relevance to me as it would someone else. Let me give you an example. I believe it was in the in March of 1996, I do believe, because I, uh, I went to a blind school up in Idaho at that time. And in March of 96, I was home in Boise when I lived there for spring break. And my mom and I got into a similar discussion. I don't know how we got into the discussion. I must have said, well, you can go to a bar and not drink. And by the way, I have been to a bar and I have not drank, just so you know. Not afraid to admit it, not ashamed of it. It just happened. Okay, I have friends who are not members, and when I go back to see them, that's what they do, is go to bars. So I sometimes uh, come along. And I'll drink uh, some ice water, or maybe I'll drink a virgin deck. As a matter of fact, it was funny. I went to a convention in 2006 with a whole bunch of, well, I met a whole bunch of people there. I went by myself. I flew from uh, Cedar City to Dallas, Texas. And after I ate dinner with a really good friend of mine who's not a member, uh, we went to a bar. And before she's we before we went, she made the joke, "Oh, since Kevin doesn't drink, he'll be our designated cane driver." And I I had a pretty good laugh at that. That was pretty funny. Uh, just a side note. But anyway, my mom told me in the spring of 1996, spring break, March 96, that a prophet said, "Avoid the very appearance of evil." Well, I thought this was kind of silly. And my mom went as far as to tell me that when her and my dad lived in Iowa, she had a friend that was not a member. And her friend wanted to go to this bar because they had great sandwiches. And my mom said, well, you can get the sandwiches, but I'm not going in. It's a bar. And she said, her friend said, well, there's not much drinking going on. It's during the day. And my mom said something to the effect of, I don't care, I, I, I want to avoid this place. 
So uh, my mom's friend went in and bought the sandwiches. Now, to this day, I think that's overboard. I would have gone in the bar and just had the sandwich and probably, knowing me, would have gotten some ice water and not thought of anything of it. And if somebody thought that I was not being a good Mormon by going into a bar, well, you know what? That's their problem. I don't care because I'm not, I don't drink, I don't smoke. And, you know, where do you draw the line of this avoid the very appearance of evil? Because quite frankly, the same people who are lecturing us about avoiding the very appearance of evil are the same ones who will go to a movie theater. Well, you know that in a movie theater, there's going to be swearing in the movie. So why go, if you're going to live this to a T, why go to a movie theater? Because there's going to be swearing. Isn't that the very appearance of evil? Why talk on the CB radio with truck drivers? Truck drivers are notorious for swearing, and so should you not get on the CB radio. This thing can be taken so overboard, and yes, I do think my brother and sister-in-law have uh, take this way too overboard, and believe it or not, and this is no disrespect to my brother and sister-in-law, they're great people, but in all due respect, they are somewhat hypocritical about this by going to the theater. Um, I don't know, what's... What about watching a movie on Netflix with a little bit of swearing? You know, it's kind of funny because people in the Mormon culture are sure defensive about songs with swearing. But what about movies with swearing? What about um, what about just general friends who might swear? Should you avoid those people? I mean, this whole thing doesn't carry much weight with me. Now, in some applications... You should avoid the very appearance of evil. I'll give you an example. Let's suppose I was an attorney or I was negotiating a standoff. And I'm using this as, a, as an example because an LDS person actually did this. This is a case where avoiding the very appearance of evil is absolutely necessary. Last, on the last podcast, I talked about the Randy Weaver standoff. I briefly mentioned it. Because of what the BLM said, you're not Mormon, are you, to, uh, uh, what was that guy, Paul Wunt, Paul Wunt, I think, I can't remember his name, his last name was, oh, David Wunt, something like that, I know his last name was Wunt, anyway, he said, uh, you're not Mormon, are you, a couple times, while he was uh, doing some things over at the Bundy Ranch and so forth, or during that time. Well, Bo Greitz came to negotiate the standoff. Bo Greitz, G-R-I-T-Z as in zebra, Google his name, he negotiated the uh, Randy Weaver standoff, and he was a Mormon at the time. And at where Randy Weaver lived, there were a lot of Aryan nations that were protesting the government and on Randy Weaver's side, and Randy Weaver went to an Aryan nation, a couple Aryan nation congresses not because he was a member, but because he was curious about what they believed, and he quickly found out, even though they shared a lot of the same views, he did not agree with them on everything. For example, uh, how to celebrate the Sabbath day and things like that. But where I want to get into this, avoid the very appearance of evil, and where I think in this particular application it is absolutely necessary to avoid the very appearance of evil. When Bo Greitz was done negotiating the standoff, and he, after he gave a press conference, 
he went over to the crowd that was protesting. And again, a lot of these, these people were Aryan nations and branch offs and so forth. And the Aryan nations are anti-Semitic. So what did he do? He made a Nazi sign. Bad idea. That actually probably did him more harm than good. Because what did the papers report the next day? Yeah, they reported about the standoff, and I don't know how much they reported about what he said during the press conference, but they certainly reported that he made a Nazi sign. What got attention? The Nazi sign that he made. Sure, the media sensational. Sure, they reported that because it would be talked about. But you see, Bo Greitz could have avoided the very appearance of evil in that case and just not said anything at all after the press conference and just left or just not made the sign. Now, I want to get into something else since we're talking about avoiding the very appearance of evil and how hypocritical this is. And again, I'm not disrespecting anybody. My mom was a terrific mother to me, and I will always think that, have always thought that. Even when I was a teenager and was a jerk to her, deep down I knew that she was a good mom. We may not have had the best relationship as a teenager, but I still thought she was a good mom in terms of taking care of me and all that. Now I have better appreciation for my mom than I ever did now that I am older. But here is where this whole idea of, and this is why, the avoiding the very appearance of evil is somewhat irrelevant in my mind. Somewhat. My mom, the same one who gave me this lecture of avoiding the very appearance of evil, and talking about how she didn't want to go into this bar because they served sandwiches, or because it was a bar. Never mind the fact they served sandwiches. Well, guess what? Thanksgiving Eve of 1992. Well, actually, let's back up before that. Uh, sometime uh, during Christmas time of 1991, my father got a, uh, a bottle of non-alcoholic wine from one of his co-workers. He obviously knew that we were LDS and didn't drink wine, so, yeah, he gave him a bottle of non-alcoholic wine. Well, that bottle of non-alcoholic wine sat in a refrigerator for a little under a year. Thanksgiving Eve, I came home that afternoon, had a great conversation with my parents and some friends of theirs. We talked a lot about politics because back then Bill Clinton had... Uh, won the election a few weeks ago and we were talking about Bill Clinton, Rush Limbaugh, and his TV show. We also talked about people that listened to Rush Limbaugh. In fact, a friend of my mom's told me and other, my dad and everyone else that was in the living room at that time, that uh, there was a particular girl in high school at that time that my mother's friend knew who would come home every day and listen to Rush Limbaugh. And then apparently, I guess according to my mom's friend, if I remember the story right, she'd apparently go back and argue with some of her liberal teachers. Well, that was a great conversation, but I'm going to guess around 5.30, 6 o'clock, somewhere around there. My dad came up with this idea to break open the non-alcoholic wine. Now, mind you, I was 12 years old. Right away, my mom should have said, avoid the very appearance of evil, get that out of the house. In fact, she probably should have said that back in 1991. And again, I mean no disrespect to my mom, but she was a hypocrite. 
She was a hypocrite because she was telling me to avoid the very appearance of evil, and yet here we have this non-alcoholic bottle of wine. How hypocritical is that? Very hypocritical. I think I probably understood it better at age 12. And to be honest, even though it was non-alcoholic, I was freaking out a little because I knew that my parents were never going to get drunk off this. First of all, it was non-alcoholic. Second of all, they're pretty active in the church still to this day, my dad's stepmom. But just the idea that it was non-alcoholic wine, I remember in my mind, not necessarily thinking, avoid the very appearance of evil, because I'd never heard that before at that point, but I just thought, since we're not supposed to drink alcohol, isn't this a similar thing? And so, as the bottle was coming around, it got to me, and I said, I'm not having any of this. And my parents were shocked, and I remember kind of the expression of my sister. I was just real adamant. I wasn't drinking it. It's similar to alcohol. I'm not drinking it. And I can't remember exactly what was said, but I know that there was some laughs going around, and my dad stood up for me and said, you don't have to drink it, son. And see, the bottle was passed around. I, don't, I can't remember who had it next, but... And I remember that really made an impression on uh, my mom's friend because several years later she still bought it up when her and I would talk about religious things and she said you'll be a uh, right before the time that I went on my mission just a few weeks before that she said you'll be a great missionary Kevin remember the time when uh, you wouldn't drink that non-alcoholic wine I, I guarantee you today my mom's friend still remembers that but, okay, if you're going to lecture me about avoiding the very appearance of evil, then stop bringing in non-alcoholic grape juice. Stop bringing in sparkling apple cider that's non-alcoholic, because that looks like champagne. You see why this holds not, very mu not much relevance to me? Because the same people who are lecturing me and you about avoiding the very appearance of evil are the same people that are drinking this sparkling apple cider that's not alcoholic around the holidays. They're the same people who might go to the movie theater, never mind the fact that there might be a bad part in a movie. So, to those who say, avoid the very appearance of evil, most likely you're a hypocrite. Because you probably do something in your life that is similar to evil, if you really want to be a purist about it. Until you come to that point where you say, I don't go to the theaters, I don't drink sparkling apple cider that's non-alcoholic, and the list would go on, I don't listen to, I don't watch any movies that have swearing, then, and I actually have to have proof that you are that person. Once you tell me that, and once you prove it to me that you are that person, then you can lecture me about avoiding the very appearance of evil. Then we can have a conversation. But until then, your lectures are irrelevant to me. And I know I want to know what you think. Kevin W. at LDSLifePodcast.com Because I think that this is a discussion that really needs to be had. And I'm tired of being lectured about this crap when the people who are lecturing me have probably done something similar just recently ago, maybe a month ago or something. Now, let's talk about Senator Hatch not running, because Senator Hatch is LDS, Mitt Romney's LDS. I have a story about Senator Hatch, actually. 
When I was a student at uh, Southern Utah University, got my major in communications, I actually met uh, Senator Hatch a few times. The first time I met Senator Hatch was in, uh, I want to say January, let's see, probably late January, possibly early February of 2003 when I was still a student at Salt Lake Community College. And I really didn't think much of the meeting. I mean, it was nice that Senator Hatch came and talked to us, but you have to understand, back then I was a bit more liberal, politically speaking, anyway. And I was already biased against Senator Hatch, because he was a Republican. This is back then when I was dumb and didn't know better, and I'm, I'm not even talking about politics. This is back when I was convinced that there was a big difference between the two parties. There's not. That's for another discussion. But I didn't know better back then. I was just a young kid in my early 20s. 22, going on to 23, precisely. But the time that I met Senator Hatch the back in 2009 was very, very significant. It's been said that the very best way to get your message across is to tell a story. Or, as I like to say, tell an experience. Why should this legislation be passed? Why shouldn't it be passed? Tell a, an experience. Well, Ron Gardner, the former Utah president of the National Federation of Blind, understood this very thing. And of course he would. He was an attorney. So of course he would understand it. So, we took a fourth grader with us to D.C. because she almost got killed. Why? Because of a hybrid car going around a neighborhood. It wasn't the driver's fault. It just happened to be a hybrid car, and the uh, the fourth grader who was with us, I think she was nine or ten years old, I'm probably going to say she was nine, was just doing what she was supposed to do. She was crossing a street. Her cane travel had to pull her back because of the hybrid cars going forward, and she, the cane travel teacher could see it. Again, wasn't necessarily the driver's fault. The driver probably wasn't thinking about it. And it wasn't the nine-year-old girl's fault because she was doing what she was supposed to do. It just happened to have been an accident that was avoided. Thank heavens. But because she avoided that accident, guess what? She lives to tell her story. And she definitely told her story in Senator Hatch's office. She read a thing in Braille, and I can't remember exactly what it said, but it basically just said that she was almost hit by a hybrid car. And what we were doing back then is we were lobbying for legislation for research on noisemakers, which, by the way, I still to this day think it was a great idea. Now, I haven't seen much come out of the legislation, but the National Federation tried to negotiate with car manufacturers. They wouldn't have anything to do with it. And this is one of those area where, areas where I'm very liberal about. If it's something this serious uh, and the car manufacturers aren't going to do anything about it, yeah, the government should be getting involved. 
And uh, even though I'm mostly conservative, this is an area that I am very liberal about. And so we, she read this, this little girl read it, the letter to Orrin Hatch in Braille. And I kid you not, folks, Orrin Hatch teared up. And I'm going to say something, since this is an LDS Live podcast. This is the LDS Live podcast, an LDS podcast. I'm going to say something here, and this is not a lie. I really felt the Spirit of the Lord as we were meeting with Orrin Hatch in, I can't remember exactly, late February or late January. I think it was actually early February 2009. I really felt the Spirit of Heavenly Father. Why did I feel the Spirit? Well, maybe because Orrin Hatch is LDS himself. Maybe because Heavenly Father wanted this legislation passed to protect disabled children and people. I don't know. All I know is I really felt the Spirit of the Lord, and I am not joking when I say that either. I even told, uh, I think I even told Ron Gardner later, there was a, definitely a spirit in the room that was really powerful. And if I were to deny it, I would be a coward. And the, I have to admit, because Orrin Hatch is a politician, I, the skeptic in me said, is he crying because he's trying to win points? But, I, 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 I really felt the spirit of the Lord. I, I have to reemphasize this because in Washington D.C., where the corruption is so powerful, the deep state, the swamp, as Donald Trump calls it, I was surprised to even feel the spirit back there in D.C. at Capitol Hill, the last place you would expect to feel the spirit. Believe me. And believe it or not, there were a couple times when I was lobbying in Washington, D.C., where I felt the Spirit of the Lord. Not as strong as that day, but there were times where I really did feel that we were doing some good things for the blind community, and I really felt the Spirit. It was very interesting. So that's my memory of Orrin Hatch. And Orrin Hatch did do some good things. My first memory of Orrin Hatch was when I was 11 years old. It was uh, mid-October of 1991. And the Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill hearings were going on. And... I was just a kid. I didn't really understand what was going on other than... Yeah, Clarence Thomas was charged with sexual harassment. Probably learned a few things uh, that day that I probably shouldn't have learned at the age of 11. But because I was naturally interested in news, I listened to the hearings on my radio. And I was actually impressed with Senator Hatch, despite the fact that I was just a kid and didn't understand what was going on. Because... Senator Hatch really, I felt, put some people in their place at the hearing. And he made it very clear 
He said something to the effect uh, to Clarence Thomas, I've been one of your best friends for 11 years. I know you wouldn't do this. I Forgive me for asking these questions, but I have to. And I really felt the sincerity behind Senator Hatch. I really did. And I still think to this day he was sincere. Now, I did write an email to Senator Hatch when I was a senior in high school because I did not like the way he was handling the President Clinton scandal or the impeachment trial because he started saying, well, at first, I liked what he was saying about how, even though in my opinion he didn't go far enough, but I liked the fact that he at least said, I'd better not hear another Democrat blaming Kenneth Starr. This is when he was on TV after Bill Clinton's so-called apology speech. I think it was more of a speech, I'm sorry I got caught. Uh, but, when, yeah, Senator Hatch is on TV right after that. I think it was Tom Brokaw that was interviewing him. Somebody at NBC was interviewing him. Uh, and he said, I better not hear another Democrat blaming Kenneth Starr. He's embarrassed his whole administration and just went off on President Clinton. Then what bothered me is... A few weeks later, he was standing up for Bill Clinton, saying, oh, he was a good father and things like that. I thought, maybe, but this has nothing to do with the impeachment. He lied to us. He ought to get impeached, if nothing else, for the lie. He committed perjury. And so I remember being disgusted, and I, uh, my mom called Senator Hatch's office, and about a month later, right before the impeachment hearings began in the Senate, I emailed Senator Hatch and told him why I thought President Clinton should be impeached. And that wasn't just because of Monica Lewinsky either, it was other things. And I remember saying in the email that uh, our religion accepts accountability and President Hinckley said that he has to have accountability. Now, in my opinion, President Hinckley on Larry King Live didn't go far enough either, but I think he did stress the accountability issue. And I remember getting a lot of praise when I went back to school, because I did this over the holidays in uh, 19, well, right after the new year. We hadn't gone, gotten back to school yet. But I remember telling a few friends of mine at school what I did. And they just praised me, particularly uh, one individual that sat by me in the choir. And she, well, I think she was very surprised that I actually did that, but uh, she kept, saying, uh, good job, I'm glad you stood up for what you believe in, and things like that. I could tell she agreed with me, and I told her exactly what I said in the email. And my cane travel teacher was proud of me. I got a lot of praise when I came back from school, when I told people that what I did, because, as you know, most teenagers aren't into politics, which is sad, but it's true. I was one of the very few that were. Just to give you an idea, I may have told you this, when I would uh, come home during my senior year of high school, a little bit of my junior year too, but even more so my senior year, instead of listening to music or watching TV, I would listen to talk radio. Usually I'd listen to Michael Reagan, the adopted son of President Reagan. I would actually get on the Internet and listen to him live because we had him on a tape uh, delayed broadcast over here in Salt Lake at the time. So I'd get on the Internet dial up back we all most of us had dial up modems I'd dial up the I'd have the computer dial up my provider's number get onto the internet and listen to Michael Reagan 
Uh, either that or I would listen to Chuck Harder. In fact, I remember the first time I called in to a national talk show host. I was a senior in high school, and I called in to the Michael Regan show and asked him what he thought of Bill Clinton, uh, what he would think if President Nixon were around today, would he get away with it? I can't remember what he said, but uh, one, one, I can't remember exactly what he said, except for he said, remember, it was Jimmy Carter that got in trouble for being interviewed in Playboy magazine. And I think Michael Reagan's point was our morals have declined so much of an, as a nation. And so I, I used to call in a lot of talk radio shows, or a few talk radio shows, when I was a senior in high school. One of them, and I got to be, I, I don't want to say friends, good acquaintances over the phone. He actually called me off the air once, and we talked about a couple things. But anyway. Point being, I was very uh, into politics, even as a teenager. So, now we have this issue of Senator Hatch retiring. And Mitt Romney's about to take over. I don't want to make this too political, because we're supposed to be talking about religion here. But l let me just say this. I'm concerned because Mitt Romney made a speech in 2016 at the University of Utah. I think it was a 17-minute speech. Uh, why we should not elect Trump and said things about Donald Trump that wasn't true. And he's still to this day anti-Donald Trump. So what I'm worried about is when he gets in there, if he's going to stall legislation or... You know, we all know Mitt Romney's part of the establishment. That's not a secret. And so maybe this is some backhanded deals going on with the establishment. I don't know. But I will tell you this. If Mitt Romney runs, which I think he will, he's going to win. There's no stopping it. Why? Well, because Mitt Romney is a Mormon. And Utah, and he's a Republican. So Mitt Romney, like him or not, I have my issues with him, but like him or not, He's got a ticket to the White House if he runs. He doesn't even have to campaign that hard. He's got a ticket. Now, it would be really interesting if a bunch of people showed up during the primaries and voted him out. Then we could have a very interesting conversation. Will that happen? Probably not. Because, again, most people don't pay attention to the primaries. But the more I have become involved in politics lately... The more I understand, it is much better to pay it to vote in the primaries. In, some, in fact, in some respects, it might even be more important to vote in the primaries than in the general election in some ways. I didn't really understand that until I got politically involved not too long ago. But I wish uh, Senator Hatch the best of retirement, and uh, we'll see what happens. Now, the big news of the... Uh, of uh, the Mormon community right now. Big news in the Mormon community. You know, it's interesting. I always think there's not much to talk about. But then I end up doing podcasts at the last minute because breaking news in the Mormon church or what have you. So, uh, Thomas Spencer Monson, also known as Thomas S. Monson, passed away. Uh, January 2nd at 10.01 p.m. What an amazing individual. And I'm not just saying that because he's a Mormon and was a prophet either. 
I've done a lot of research about him. I remember some of his talks. He loved to talk about experiences and relate them to the gospel. I think that's great. I would be really curious to know, because President Monson went back to East Germany in 1968 when the State Department told him not to go, and rightfully so. But he went anyway. Now, I understand that he was on an errand for the Lord and all, but I have to wonder, did he ever feel scared? Because if it were me in 1968, I would have stayed clear away from East Germany. Wouldn't even touch it. Even though I'm an American, there's not much they could do, but, you know, who's to say I couldn't do something that they like and they didn't like and they would put me in jail. Thomas S. Monson had the nerve to go over to East Germany and tell the saints if they obey and if they live all the commandments, they will be blessed. Well, he was right. What a, uh, what a great amount of faith that they had. And guess what? 17 years later, April, uh, June 29th, 1985, the Freiburg Temple was dedicated. What an amazing story. Let me just, because uh, I remember being on my mission in uh, uh, Canada, hearing this story. Because somebody had uh, recorded a whole bunch of Education Week talks in the year 1999. I was on my mission from 99 to 2000. I should probably talk about my mission someday. Not now, but eventually I, I should. President Monson, again, I heard this on a, on a talk tape that was done for Education Week. So now what happened is somebody recorded the talks uh, from the church satellite system up there in Nova Scotia, Canada, and a lot of us uh, got copies of it. You know, you know how if somebody gets tape, they copy it, someone else copies it. You know how that goes. So, uh, President Monson uh, did a dedicatory prayer. And in the open and in the dedicatory prayer in 1975, it was uh, April of 1975, um, he said, I'm just going to quote you some of the some of the prayer here. I'm not going to quote you all of it. Uh, because it, it's too long. But I can quote you some. This is public. It was on a tape. It was on, uh, you can look it up on YouTube. So I'm not just divulging anything secretively here. It says, uh, in the prayer, I dedicate and rededicate this land. Wilt thou open the way to open thy hollow, or to open, yeah, to open thy Uh, hollow temple and the non-members will be touched will thy soften of the leaders the communist leaders that may be uh, that they may be softened granted that from that day forth they will uh, that they may be forth well, for years after that, uh, there was a mission president who served in uh, 
somewhere in Germany, I, I could never pronounce the name, but somewhere in Germany there was a mission president, President Brickhart. He must have been in uh, uh, West Germany. I guess he could have been in East Germany, but I don't know that they had that many missionaries back then. But he must have been in West Germany. President Brookhart went to Berlin. And I think he was actually a German native as well. Uh, he went to Berlin and got a hold of a government official and he said, can our members go to Switzerland to do temple work? And the guy who was in charge of religious affairs at the East German government said, of course not. We wouldn't grant you that. And the conversation went something like this every year for all about a decade, a little under a decade. Yes, I know what you want to talk about. You want to see if you can go to Switzerland. No. And obviously they talked about other things. And they actually developed a pretty good relationship and got to be pretty good friends. And one day the conversation went something like this. I know what you're here for. You want to see if, our, if your saints can go to Switzerland. Has it ever occurred to you that you can build a temple here? And he said, I am not in charge of people leaving the country, so I can't approve of it. But I would approve of a temple being built here. And at first, the church was going to just do a ward house with an endowment, ring, an endowment wing, a chapel with an endowment wing on the, on the side of the chapel because they didn't want to draw attention to a Christian temple in a communist country, and rightfully so, because uh, that back then those were very tough times, and the church probably wanted to avoid the appearance of standing out in a communist country. Well, when uh, President Burkhardt bought this to this guy in religious affairs in East Germany, he said, no, we know what your temples are like. We want you to have a real temple. Well, then an issue came of getting land. What are they going to do about land? Because nobody in Germany owned land. So they negotiated with the government to get a 99-year lease on a piece of land. And they had two, uh, three sites. One of the sites is where, the, uh, is where they were thinking of building. But in order to build that, because uh, there was a shortage of fuel in Germany, they would have had to build uh, three... Uh, three buildings uh, probably in addition to the temple three uh, three more buildings I think so that uh, they could heat the temple with coal and all that well President Brookhart didn't feel right about that so uh, pro uh, so he found that there was a pipeline a natural gas line that went into East Germany from Russia nobody tapped into it so he went to talk to the government officials, and he was denied three times. He was denied first by the city, and then I think by the district or something like that, and then by uh, the federal government of East Germany. So he said, I'm going to go talk to my friend in high places. And he eventually got the natural gas pipeline, uh, the approval to tap into the natural gas pipeline that eventually went from Russia to Germany. In fact, that was the only building that tapped into that natural gas line. Somebody made the comment, a uh, great guy, great sense of humor, said, uh, you see, Russia now gives the LDS church the heat. That was pretty good. And uh, 
so things went on, and they were able to build the temple and dedicate it. And uh, while it was uh, before it was dedicated during the open house, a lot of people went to go see it. As a matter of fact, uh, the church, or not the church, the uh, German government, the East German government, did not approve of proselyting, but eventually they did approve of proselyting on the temple grounds because 90,000 people went through, and out of that 90,000, 85,000 were members, or were non-members. And so they they approved of proselyting on the LDS temple grounds. And another thing that uh, the temple president, I can't remember who it was, but the temple president noticed back then that there were people who were taking pictures. You know how LDS people take pictures after the wedding. Well, a lot of non-members who got married elsewhere were coming over to the temple grounds to take their pictures. And the Protestants were being helpful because they told people not to go. And when a lot of people showed up, the missionaries that were at the temple and other people who were in authority at the church said, why did you come here? Oh, because the Protestants told us not to. We're glad we did because we like this ceremony better than the Oregon ceremony that the Protestants did. Or that, yeah, and uh, so my point is uh, that all happened thanks to Thomas S. Monson. And I, I have to wonder how he was feeling because, like I said, even if I was on an errand for the Lord going to a communistic country where I was advised by the State Department not to go, I would. there's a part of me that would be very scared. And there's a part of me that would wonder if I'm going to be kidnapped or held hostage over here or something. But President Monson got past Checkpoint Charlie, which was the checkpoint where people going in and out of East Germany had to go through so that uh, people wouldn't sneak out and things like that. And I know his wife wouldn't go with him, and I also have to wonder, because I'm sure there was, was there a lot of friction between Thomas S. Monson and the rest of the church leaders before he went to Germany? There had to have been. I know this church is uh, guided by the Lord, but there's also humans running it too, you know. So I'm sure that there was some friction. Uh, one of the talks that has always stood out to me with, well, before I go there, let's talk more about President Monson uh, from a historical standpoint. Then we'll talk about one of his talks. President Monson was born uh, August 21st, 1921. And he also was the bishop when he was 22. That's amazing right there, because uh, most people, even back then, wouldn't be bishops until they were in their 30s, maybe 40s. So that's, uh, that is amazing right there. Oh, he was born August 21st, 1927. I'm sorry. August 21st, 1927, he was born. And he was bishop at 22. He was mission president at uh, 32. So that's interesting that 10 years later he was a mission president. Then at the age of 36, he was called as an apostle. Now, before he was called as an apostle, he went to, he enrolled at the University of Utah in 1944 
Then in 1945, he was called to war. And a really interesting story. Um, he was, I guess he was friends with someone by the name of Arthur. And Arthur died uh, because he was on a vessel that sunk during World War II, and the sea swallowed him up, as they would say in novels. And unfortunately, he passed away. And so years later, President Monson shared an experience where Arthur's mother gazed at him uh, and said, Tommy, I long to know... I, oh, I, oh, I be, oh, I'm sorry. I, okay, so, he, so uh, she said, Tommy, I belong to no church. Tell me, will Arthur live again? President Monson, uh, back then, uh, back then, probably before it was just Thomas Monson, but whatever, President Monson replied, to the best of his ability, he's assured, he testified to her that Arthur will live again. Now, I guess Arthur was a neighbor and was not a member, um, and so he wanted to give his mother uh, the assurance that he will live again. And in 1948, uh, President Monson, oh, by the way, during, while well, he was in the war, I guess at some point during his military service, he was uh, offered the chance to be a commissioner in the military. And at the advice of Harold B. Lee, he turned it down. I'm not sure what exactly Harold B. Lee gave him reasons for, but obviously we now know. And he also graduated at BYU uh, with a degree in uh, NBA, National Business Administration degree. He also graduated with a, ba a bachelor's in business, uh, I believe it was in 1948 at BYU. And when he was called as an apostle, he gave a very humble prayer. Or I, I don't want to say a prayer, but he made a very humble statement. From the depths of my humility, for with the, uh, for, oh, oh, I'm sorry, let me read that again. From the depths of my humility, and with an overwhelming sense of inadequacy I stand before you and pray earnestly for your prayers in my behalf what a humble person you know most politicians they would uh, just get re really egotistical about the uh, the fact that they be have some leadership and what a humble person to say that Here is uh, two, uh, three talks that stood out to me by President Monson. I'm just going to give excerpts of these talks. i just uh, paraphrase a few things. I'm not going to go over the whole talk because it'd take a while. I'm certainly not going to read it because it'd take a long time. If I knew how to, I would actually insert sound bites here of these talks. But I'll just uh, paraphrase what he said and we'll move on. The first talk that I remember distinctively by President Bonson, well, it wasn't the first, but the first one that really stuck out to me, I was a senior in high school, 
during the April of 1999 General Conference. President Monson began his talk talking about a blind person who, well, he first of all talked about saying uh, gratitude and how Jesus went to minister the people and he really thought about, he really talked about gratitude and things like that. And President Monson, one of the things that he began his talk with was there was a blind person named uh, Charles L. McDonald. And I'm not sure where this was, but it, it sounds like it was done in a big city. Anyway, Charles L. McDonald was a blind person. And that's why the talk stood out to me, because he was talking about a blind person. Anyway, Charles L. McDonald carried every day a whole cup of pencils or a whole bottle of pencils. And he would sit aside on the side of... Uh, one of the busy sidewalks in the big cities. And uh, Charles L. McDonald had a sign above his head that said, I am blind. Well, it probably came across to the people that he was feeling sorry for himself or whatever. His, his tin cup foil, uh, uh, that he would put money in was never filled. I'm sure some people put money in it here and there, but it was never full. And one day, somebody came and redid his sign and put on the words, put the words, and I guess uh, made the sign more colorful as well, put on the words, it is springtime, I am blind. And then his cup started overflowing with money. And then President Monson went on to talk about how there was a blind person that served on the stake high council years ago. Now, I don't know if this person was completely blind or if he had some sight. I'm assuming, by the way of the, the talk, that he was completely blind. But he talked about how this blind person was on the stake high council and did his job just as good as any sighted person. And... Apparently, it was a stormy night. This must have been the Saturday before state conference, I guess. And it was a stormy night. And there was thunder. And almost immediately after the thunder struck, the lights went out. And I assume the whole entire power went out as well in that particular area. And naturally, just out of instinct, President Monson grabbed this blind person's arm and said, let me help you downstairs. And this uh, blind person on the stake high council said, no, you're in my territory now. I'll lead you downstairs. And he did. And uh, I remember hearing that. My brother said, how great was that talk? Did you like that? He was talking about blind people. I said, yeah. My first thought was, maybe there's hope for me to go on a mission because uh, I wanted to go on a mission and I was told I couldn't because of my blindness. make a long story short, I went for 11 months. I'll talk about that in a future podcast. Um, and then uh, he went on to talk about a blind person who converted to the church in the Pacific Islands. And after the blind person converted, Thomas S. Monson went over there, President Monson went over there, and uh, gave this blind person a blessing. And the guy, the blind person, cried and said, well... 
I'd like to see, but it's not my will, it's thine, and I'm glad to be part of, be part of this gospel. I'm glad to know more of the truth of the gospel now. And that was a very good talk. Another talk that stuck out to me was during the October session of 1999 General Conference, six months prior to April, where he, or I'm sorry, October of 1998, six months prior to April of 99, he talked about a number of things. Oh, this is where he talked about gratitude, and he said uh, he talked about the parable where a bunch of le uh, ten lepers came, and they all went to. They found out that the Savior was coming, and they all got kneeled at the Savior's feet, or fell at his feet, and said, "Lord, have or Master, have mercy on us." And the Savior healed them, and they were cleansed. And out of the nine lepers that were out of the ten lepers that were there, only one of them came back and thanked the Savior. And the Savior said, "You're completely." I said, "Where's the?" the nine, and he said they left, he said, you're completely whole now. And then he talked about a really heartwarming story in that talk about uh, uh, something that happened at Murray High School, probably, I'm guessing probably about in 1997, since he said a year or so ago in the talk, probably happened in the spring of 97, where Murray High... The student body of Murray High elected a Down Syndrome girl to be the homecoming queen. And that was a heartfelt story. And then he went on to say that the vice president of the school got up, vice principal got up and said, this is a great day. We elected somebody because of their inner beauty this time. And then he went on to tell a really tragic story that... Honestly, it kind of brought tears to my eyes. And I'm not a very emotional person. But this kind of brought tears to my eyes. Imagine five little girls hiding in the trunk of a car because uh, they, were playing hide, they were playing hide and seek. And like most kids, uh, they hide during hide and seek. A lot of kids play hide and seek. I even played it as a blind person with a little help from my grandmother. But that's another story. But uh, just being kids, they got in the trunk of the car, and they shut it. Obviously, all five of them were small enough to fit in the car. And the trunk was shut, and they couldn't get out, and they died of heat exhaustion. What a tragedy. And President Monson back then, uh, well, yeah, he, he could have been called President Monson back then, too. President Monson just uh, felt really impressed to go... I, go to this, these people's house and there was a long line of cars at the person's house the Sunday I th it might have been the viewing it could have been the viewing it didn't say in the talk but he it was a long line and he said it was though I read a sign that said little kids go slow and he, there wasn't a sign but he felt like it so maybe the little kids were watching and he went to the viewing, I guess is what it was, and just expressed his condolences and spoke at the funeral and said, the phrase that we should erase from our mind is, if only. And I thought that was really interesting because if I had a kid that died in the trunk of my car, I would be furious at myself. And this was not a good time for the parents. 
It was not their fault. They just thought they were kids out playing. And I'm not sure at what point they knew that the kids died in the trunk. What a tragedy. And how interesting to come back and say, eliminate the phrase, if only. Erase it from our minds. And I'm trying to find trying to find out if he said uh, what to replace it with because I remember let's see anyway while I'm trying to find that what a what an amazing story and how interesting was it for President Monson to really give comfort to those that were sincerely suffering emotionally okay here we go we should say trust in the Lord with all thy heart is what we should replace if only with that's interesting President Monson did not like to tell stories he called them experiences I heard an interview on the Doug Wright show with Sherry Dew they were talking about this very thing. He did not like to tell his experiences stories. He liked to call them experiences. And President Monson was a very ordinary person. Matter of fact, I uh, didn't tell you this, but shortly after President Monson was prophet, my dad saw President Monson, my dad and stepmom saw President Monson at Little America, and he was in sweats. Uh... Could you imagine a prophet of God in sweats? But he was in sweats at Little America. And I thought, wow, that must be a pretty down-to-earth person. You know, he liked to go to the jazz games. He liked to go to Snappy's, which apparently was an old hamburger place here in Utah. And he was, a lot of people, he was treated like a rock star in rural Utah. Governor Spencer, Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox was on the Doug Wright show explaining that wherever he went in rural Utah, everybody wanted to be there that lived in rural Utah. And he really was, uh, if I can call it, the people's president. Not that other presidents haven't, but what I mean is he really enjoyed being with the people. And he really was for the people. He was definitely a people's person, not that other prophets weren't, but he really showed that he was for the people. President Monson will be missed. He was, uh, if President Monson were, well, this could probably be said about a lot of people that it, in church leadership, uh, high up in the general authorities, but if President Monson were a person making albums, let's say once a year or once every five years or something, from the time he was an apostle till January 3rd, or uh, January 2nd, or shortly before he was prophet or whatever, he would uh, be the soundtrack of a lot of our lives, if you think about it. Now, he was not the soundtrack of our lives, but for those, I didn't grow up in Utah, but for those that were here, maybe he was definitely the sunrise of many people's lives since he was very much 
tried and was successful at putting off this persona of just an ordinary person. Not that he did that on purpose or was trying to get a point across. That was just his nature. So President Monson will be missed. Very good church president in my mind. And having said all that, I will talk to you later, folks. Uh, by the way, coming up on the podcast, we will have the person who does my voiceover work, Karen Miller. She has a great story to tell. Even though she's not a member, we can. she's surrounded by a lot of them. And her story is so great that uh, I decided to have her on the podcast. Matter of fact, I need to call her soon. And uh, Brian Hyde is coming back because uh, we'll have some news about the Bundys on the 8th of this month on Monday. So I'm nervous about that news, but I'm hoping it's good news. But I'm a realist. But we'll see. We'll talk about it uh, as soon, well, soon after the news breaks. In the meantime, I will talk to you all later. Oh, by the way, don't forget to like the LDS Life podcast on Facebook. And don't forget, if you have a comment or suggestion, email me, kevinw at ldslifepodcast.com. That's Kevin, K-E-V-I-N-W at ldslifepodcast.com. Thank you for listening to the LDS Life Podcast. To contact Kevin, email him at kevinw at ldslifepodcast.com. Don't forget to check him out on iTunes and other podcast apps. And don't forget to like the podcast on Facebook at LDS Life Podcast.